Welcome to Power Surge. That's right, not Power Hour, Power Surge. I don't know if we've done a Power Surge for a while. I'm Alex Epstein, by the way. Uh, but did them a couple years ago. They're just shorter takes on breaking news. And uh, at CIP recently, we'd been having some interesting daily discussions, particularly between me and Stefan Hen, who's uh, one of our awesome researchers in Germany. And at some point, I thought, well, we should just... Uh, we might as well share some of these discussions with people because they might be interested and also um, now that I'm done with the book have more time to do current commentary so uh, we'll we'll talk about the news a little bit today and and let us know what you think uh, Stefan welcome to power surge hello Alex hello everyone uh, first of all just technology is is cool because Stefan is uh, in some ungodly part of Europe and <laughs> I'm in Calgary, Alberta, uh, doing some, uh, teaching a workshop tomorrow actually on, on energy communications and yeah, perfect quality. So thank you Skype and thank you industry, uh, that supports Skype. All right. Anyway, let's, let's, uh, talk through uh, a couple of stories. So one, one story we were talking about earlier this morning is, um, has to do with uh, what's called the Monterey Shale, which is a very large oil deposit that I've written about. And recently there was an announcement by uh, the U.S. Energy Information Administration that dramatically reduced the amount of quote-unquote recoverable oil, and that's going to be important, that terminology, recoverable oil, um, that's supposedly in California's shale deposits. And uh, this reduction is by 96%, which is a very large reduction. And people are now saying... Oh well, like why are we? You know, obviously fracking is just why even bother? And this is a good case against fracking. Stefan, what was your reaction when you saw that? Um, well, interesting. I mean, it's not unusual that preliminary numbers are corrected downwards. Um, but I found it interesting that um, the government is now determining before production starts, how much oil we can recover from a certain deposit. Yeah, so if we think about a place like North Dakota, what was the government's estimate 20 years ago about how much oil we were going to recover from there? And what if the environmentalists said, well, it's not worth trying because, um, well, look, there's such a low uh, estimate. So this is, I think, a, a reversal of the way things should go. You, you, need, to define, you need to define laws so that people drill in a way that is is not endangering others uh, but then people should be free to judge for themselves and and if if it's not actually a good idea if it's not economic if it doesn't give you good return on investment if it's not going to produce a lot of uh, affordable energy then then they won't do it um, but to, to use and I mean to use an estimate of to, to essentially say oh well if the government, doesn't think something is technologically possible, we shouldn't do it. That's about the worst uh, precedent uh, possible. Anything to add to that, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this whole thing of um, outsourcing certain, you know, parts of the production chain to government. You know, if you look at the United States uh, Geological Service, uh, USGS, um, it provides these numbers um, for all kinds of minerals, and that's, in my view, that's wrong to do it this way. 
I mean, we shouldn't have a government agency determining how much oil is recoverable. And then the industry, the whole industry relies on that. The industry should, you know, explore for themselves as they do, like, in, you know, offshore um, areas where they drill for oil. And then they can determine whether it's worth investment or not. But there shouldn't be a government agency uh, running the show and uh, telling us how much is recoverable at current technologies. Because newer technologies emerge every now and then, and uh, entrepreneurs should be determining how much of that oil will be recovered in the near future. Neiman, why isn't there a survey for you know the materials that go into windmills or the materials that go into solar panels it's just um right i think that's that's the important point that it's it's not a proper uh function of government and particularly it's it's essentially an economic assessment and i think i think people sometimes confuse it because they think they think of oh just oh there's a certain amount of oil in the ground and then the scientists quote unquote need to just figure out what that is and then we'll know how much oil there is and that is not even remotely the situation there's um an enormous, enormous amount of estimated huge raw material that would be a potential oil resource, potential coal resource, potential gas resource. But the whole question is, to what extent can human ingenuity uh, devise the technology and methods to get that out economically, and how does that compare to the other alternatives? And it's exactly the sort of thing you don't want the government involved in uh, at all. Speaking of government uh, involvement, there was a <coughs> there was a story Sorry, I've been a little sick, which is part of the reason we haven't had any power hours uh, in the last couple of weeks. I actually had basically no voice at all. Um, the the chief executive of Fiat recently said something interesting about uh, the electric car. What was that? Um, yeah, that's a Fiat 500e electric car. And, um, well, they are losing money on every uh, unit. And... Um, the chief executive, Sergio Maccioni, uh, said, um, I hope our buyers are not buying more than the minimum required amount because um, the government standards set uh, require uh, manufacturers to sell a certain amount of electric vehicles. And, um, of course, Fiat has no interest in selling more of a unit than necessary where they lose money on every unit. Yeah, I mean, they're basically paying a tax. And he said, I, I hope you don't buy it because every time I sell one, it costs me $14,000. Yeah. Um, so he mentioned that the Tesla was the only one that is making money on electric cars, uh, in part because they, they charge you know, quite a high price. But how much of their business model is itself related to government? Uh, do you mean by Tesla Motors? Yeah, Tesla. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think I think it's um, like I mean Tesla is partially uh, some fashion and some government requirements because uh, they can, for example, uh, in a carbon trading scheme, they can sell uh, to other manufacturers. Um, licenses to emit CO2, and that's part of how they make money. 
Yeah, so for tomorrow, let's look into, I'm, I'm curious about the specific numbers, because that, that's what I was thinking of. I mean, not only do you have this whole tax credit thing where you get, I don't know, $7,000, $8,000 at least, I think, depending on the, the part of the country, um, but that is a lot of the, quote, value that they're creating are these uh, carbon credits. So it's, it's a cap and trade sort of thing, and uh, I do not... <laughs> And not consider it legitimate for me to be paying them to allegedly not be emitting CO2, which they are anyway, as I discussed in my, my Forbes article on the Tesla S as a nice fossil fuel uh, car. So, uh, yeah, we will check into that uh, and get back to you tomorrow. Let's see what else. Um, another thing that came up, maybe this, maybe this will be the last story, maybe we'll do one more. Um, is that TransCanada, which is the company behind Keystone XL, uh, said that they're considering a rail project. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, since uh, Keystone XL is delayed by the State Department, or more broadly the Obama administration, um, the customers of, Key, of TransCanada said, uh, if we can't ship our oil via pipeline, um, why not consider, you know, building some facilities to do it by rail? And that's something TransCanada right now is looking into. And it will only be a temporary solution because rail is not uh, the most efficient way to do it. Um, yeah, but that's... And by the way, some environmentalists told us that that's impossible. If you, you know, delay Keystone XL or stop it, it won't be shipped at all. But as we can see, you know, TransCanada and the oil industry have options and they will use them because they have big capital investment and it needs to pay off. Yeah, although there are limits to that argument. I mean, I think it's, it's because it is theoretically possible to shut down a lot of this stuff. So you'll see, you'll see TransCanada and other companies arguing publicly that, well, the oil is going to get shipped anyway. So we might as well do it via pipeline. And I think that's not the right way to think of it. It's, it's pipeline is the best way to ship it. And that's why it's good. You're, it's a, it's the best way to do a good thing. That, that's how I think to think of something like Keystone XL, yeah. not, not it's the best way to do a bad thing. Um, right. or, an, or the best way to do an inevitable thing. Right. And it's also, you know, from an environmental perspective, even if you were like, putting environment first before human needs, uh, you would have to acknowledge that the pipeline would be extremely safe compared to all other modes of transportation. Well, but which is safe, not just safe for whom? If, you're, if environment comes above human beings, well, you're not concerned with human beings. It's the, yeah. it's the safety for the land that the pipeline would inhabit. Yeah, that's true. Even the environment would prefer the Keystone XL. Which is not to say that the other modes of transportation are bad. You can do it by truck, you can do it by rail. It's better than not having oil for human beings. Um, but the pipeline would be better in any way. Yeah, except that it would... It, I mean, I think these points are important. I mean, it's important to understand the mechanics of how they work and that there's a certain kind of hypocrisy in, or nihilism in what the environmentalists are doing in that, in that if, they're if they're really concerned about this as a catastrophic threat, this is not 
they're not taking a constructive approach and they're not even aware that all things being equal in this situation, they would increase uh, CO2 emissions by using something other than a pipeline. But I mean, more fundamentally, there is a logic to their position, which is they're trying to stop oil and this is a choke point. Um, and then they'll, they'll try to, they're also, in a sense, they're an equal opportunity attacker, or at least in, now maybe, you know, you can argue the administration isn't and it's friends with Warren Buffett and he's invested in rail. And there are these sorts of theories, which some of may, some of which maybe have, some of which may have validity, some of which may be quasi conspiracy theories. But main thing is they are, they're opposing this because it's an oil project and the people supporting it need to support pipelines as a means of furthering oil projects, not as a means of doing oil projects with slightly less in the way of CO2 um, emissions. So that's, that's just you know, the theme that we reinforce when we talk, when we work with companies, is do not accept the idea at all that your product is this uh, addiction, even if you think it's a necessary addiction or a temporarily necessary addiction or a temporarily necessary evil, that's not the right perspective. This is something that's a, it's a necessary good. And so think of, argue, as I say, argue to a hundred, argue that this is a positive. Don't argue that this is uh, the least negative because it isn't. And so you're not, not helping anyone uh, by doing this. All right. Well, let's let's. This is an experimental format, so I'm curious to see what people think. Let's let's stick right now with doing three uh, stories a day. Stefan, any any takeaway lessons you think uh, that occur to you from any of today's three stories? Um, yeah. In one sentence, government intervention is mostly bad today. When is it good? <laughs> well, if we get attacked. Then oh yeah, yeah, no, but that's that's no, you can't put it that way because that that's an equivocation. I mean, intervention means intervention in voluntary transactions among indi individuals. Okay. Then it's always bad. Okay, <laughs> it's probably won't be a surprise to many listeners who are familiar with our views. But yeah, in particular, um, I mean, I'm just sort of elaborating in the context of of. Uh, you know these these issues. What well, what we see is government intervention in voluntary trade and, and voluntary productive action is you know lessening the intelligence of that action. Whether you're talking about intelligently um, engaging in hydraulic fracturing in California, or um, intelligently deciding what sort of automobile is going to be best for individuals to drive, that's most cost effective. Or deciding what's the best you know, form of fuel to use and the best way to transport it. In all of these cases, individuals have uh, have intelligent identifications that they're willing to invest their money in, um, and that they rightfully should be able to. And the government is coming and saying, "No, you shouldn't be able to do that. We judge differently. We know better." But not with evidence that they're violating anyone's rights, uh, but just rather you know the government thinking it has a right to do anything or the government manufacturing some uh, pseudo violation of rights that's completely undefined uh, such as co2 and maybe tomorrow we'll talk about the recent um, recent story on the EPA's quote-unquote finding about the dangers of co2 emissions um, and so yeah that'll be what I just said that'll be my my parting shot 
government, you know, government force interfering with individual, private, business, collaborative uh, intelligence. And so that is going to be then the enemy of, of life, the enemy of flourishing, the enemy of industrial progress. All right, Stefan, thanks for joining me, and we will talk probably tomorrow. Thank you. Have a nice day.